Um, all right, children, you are now dismissed. And uh, teachers along, along with them, please go. <laughs> all right, for the rest of you, go ahead and pull your Bibles out. And uh, you can open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. And uh, inside of your worship folder, you'll, you'll see a little spot for taking notes if you'd like. There's a pen in front of you. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, if you've never filled out a visitor card, we'd love to hear from you, get to know who you are, and, um, and just welcome you to the church. You'll get to uh, just kind of learn more about what the, what the church is doing and the kinds of things that we're involved in. And uh, just a quick announcement before we dive in is that the hunt is coming up uh, the Saturday before Easter, which is one week from this Saturday. And uh, so in preparation for that, Kel just made a great comment. Wouldn't it be great if Neighborhood Bible Church were known as a church that didn't just preach about God's love, preach the word, preach the truth, preach the good news of God coming into a neighborhood, but actually lived it and actually demonstrated it in really, really tangible ways? Well, one of the tangible ways we're seeking to demonstrate that is just to love our neighbors by providing this hunt. And what it is, is it's a community, uh, community-wide, just all-invite to Palmore Park a mile away. And, uh, and we're just going to do this thing for the kids. There's all kinds of different ways to be involved. Uh, one of the biggest ways we have right now is that next Saturday morning, my family and I will be here at 9 o'clock in the morning. And uh, really from 9 o'clock until 12, it's kind of an open house feel. Um, but we're going to have maps out here, and we're going to have stacks of flyers that just say uh, to the neighborhood, hey, come on out to Palmore Park at such and such a time on such and such a day, and uh, this is just a free community event for you. And last year doing this, again, it was just a blast going around meeting neighbors, being outside of these four walls and, and getting to, to love on people and meet, uh, meet the people that, that were here and around. So that's next Saturday at 9 o'clock, starting at 9 o'clock. And again, if you have soccer games, whatever, come before, come after, come just give an hour of your time. Um, you'll be surprised at how many homes you can hit when you split up and, and pass it out and uh, all that good stuff. Well, we are wrapping up this morning our Hard to Believe series. We've been in this series called Hard to Believe uh, this year. And I want you to look at your, at your bulletin just for a second. Just, just kind of look at the, at the title that, that we have there. Um, and again, part of what, what we wanted to, to, to bring up as, as we were looking at this was to say, you know, what were, what were some of the, the highlight reel of things that Jesus said it just made you scratch your head and just maybe uh, it was kind of like, wow, what is that? Why is that in the Bible? I don't know if you've ever been reading the Bible and just go, how does that line up with this? I've got an entire book on Bible difficulties, it's called. I remember taking a class in Bible college on Bible difficulties. And what it means is these, these apparent contradictions or how can that possibly line up with this or that? And Jesus said some things. And then if I'm honest, I just wish he didn't say it. It's just harder that way. I go, Jesus, you could have left it right here, ended the verse there, and it's all feel good and really uplifting and encouraging, but then you throw that on, and it makes it really, really challenging. And that's what this hard to believe uh, series has all about, been about. The word hard is just difficult, it means awkward potentially, require a great deal of endurance, physical or mental effort. And you know what? The sayings we've been looking at require all of that at various times. And yet, this little tagline, the astonishing invitation of Jesus. They're hard words that he's saying, but all along the undercurrent is this invitation to join him. 
And it's an astonishing invitation. It's not a weird invitation if I invite you over to my house for lunch. No one would just go, whoa, that's crazy. But Jesus came along, and the work that he was inviting them into was to, was to come help usher in the kingdom of God. In fact, he made a case for just saying, it's already here. And come and join me. I'm a conquering king, and I want you to come be a part of things. Jesus makes demands of people. It's this interesting play. It's an invitation to join him. He doesn't come in and force his will on our lives, but he does make demands of people. We've looked at some of these. Come and die, he said. Sacrificially give if you want to receive. That's what he said. Have a righteousness that exceeds that of the professionally religious. And then last week, love your enemies. Again, parts of the Bible that if we could, we would edit out at certain times in our life. And if you have a real enemy in your life right now, or if that hit you hard last week, you just go, man, I wish he didn't say that. It would be so much easier. But the right response is to fall on his feet and say, I need help with this, Lord. This sounds really, really difficult. I wonder if you and I would have liked Jesus if we lived in Palestine uh, some 2,000 years ago. You know, I mean, really, if, if we came in contact with him and, and if, if we saw him and if we walked with him, would we have liked him? You know, like a lot of prophets, like most prophets, both ancient and current, Jesus basically ticked a lot of people off. Prophets have a way of doing that. They have a way of saying things that are difficult and they're not real just cuddly kinds of people to be around. I think Jesus had this attractive quality. It's clear from Scripture that he drew a crowd, right? But remember, he would gather a crowd only to kind of disband them with some prickly statement. Only to call on the, you know, on the carpet some, some thing that was going on. And, and people would say, well, that's a difficult saying. Who can believe that? And they would leave him. And that's just kind of Jesus' M.O. You know, I don't know if you have friends who say things you wish they wouldn't sometimes, but we're, we're guilty by association, right? I'm out playing golf one time with uh, Glenn Miller's son, Glennie, and a buddy of mine, Sean, and this guy named Thomas Sorrentino. Some of you know Thomas. He's our sports pastor over at, uh, over at Valley Church. Thomas stands about this big. He's a big old dude, and his natural face looks like this. He looks like he wants to kill you. I'm not kidding you. He's an Italian dude, and he just he's really intimidating, and, and he's a prophet. His personality is black or white. It's like, Thomas, do you like gray? No, I hate it. I like black or white. That's him. We're out playing golf one day, and this group behind us is, is hitting their golf ball before we're cleared of the green. And that's a big no-no in golf. There's a lot of etiquette in golf, you know. And the reason for that is quite simple. You don't want to get hit by a flying golf ball. So it's really, really rude to do that. So they had done it maybe once, and, and, uh, and a second time, Thomas, Thomas is playing terrible, by the way. I think it would have not happened had he played good. But he's hitting ball. He just chunks it. He's steaming mad. And golf's a great way to, to kind of get to know people. And uh, I didn't really know Thomas super well, but I'm just going, whoa, this guy's going to flip his lid any minute. And, uh, and all of a sudden, this ball comes trickling up behind him. And I'm like, well, this should be fine. Like, what's going to happen? And Thomas goes, Thomas goes, hey! And he just turns around, and he is just screaming at the group behind us. And I'm like, whoa, I've never been in a fight on a golf course, but it's going to happen today. This is pretty amazing. And, um, and then, but here's the kicker. Then he proceeds to walk off and use the restroom. 
Well, we go up and start putting. Well, what's the group behind us do? They've just been completely challenged. There's like four guys. And they come walking up the fairway. And, and they're kind of cussing us out. They're like, hey, which one of you has a problem with us? And they're wanting to start a fight. Well, A, our biggest guy just went to the bathroom. <laughs> and B, it wasn't even us having the main issue. And we're, we're all kind of like, well, you know. I don't know if you've been in situations like that, though. Guilty by association. I mean, you're just... That's our guy. You know, he said it. And I wonder if the disciples felt this way sometimes. They're cruising around. They're feeding people. The baskets keep overflowing. Woohoo! And then Jesus makes some comment, and he's like, eat my flesh. And they're like, what? And they're just like, you know, moving away from a little bit. That's a hard saying, Jesus. And they'd even pull him aside once in a while and try to correct him a little bit. You know, you may want to lay off of the eat my flesh statements. You know, you may want to lay off of the idea of loving your enemies or coming and dying or really offending those in power. They did it all the time. And kind of guilty by association, we are as Christians, we follow Christ. And so people come and they say, they say, what's this that Jesus says this? What does that mean? And that's part of what it means to be a believer is to, is to know what it means and say, gosh, I better be ready to have an answer of why does Jesus say that? And so it's a part of working it out in our own lives and wrestling through these barriers to faith and kind of going, you know, I've wrestled with that and, and, and here's, here's the way I see it. Well, Jesus' words today are, are seemingly really simple. And like a lot of his phrasings or things, there's a part of it that just seems really inoffensive. Follow me. You know, for a Jewish rabbi to say, follow me, is not shocking at all. That's like, come to class. That's all it is. Come, come sit at my feet and listen. That's totally normal. They were a dime a dozen to be a rabbi in, in Jesus' day and to say, follow me. The rub is when he says, Follow only me. Follow me to the exclusion of all else. And you know that's the rub with people today? If you're not a Christian here today and you haven't settled who Jesus is, that rubs you wrong. I know it does. I don't think I've met a person yet that says, yeah, I love the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That just sits well with me. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You know, people, uh, people really aren't offended by talking about spirituality. People aren't offended about talking about God. People aren't talk, uh, offended about paths to heaven, about morality, about righteousness. But when you bring up the name of Jesus, and if they've been in America long enough, and they've heard someone say that Jesus is the only way, that's where you watch the body language begin to change. That's where you begin to feel the tension in the relationship. That's where you begin to feel uh, just a whole different tone to things. Angels, spirituality, paths, we can talk about that all day long. That's Oprah. I mean, that's, that's out there, right? That's all over the place. And it's fine to talk about that, but the second we start talking about a narrow way or any of that, it gets really frustrating and awkward for people. Matthew chapter 7, if you're not there, turn there. And Matthew chapter 7 just says this, starting in verse 13. It says, enter through the narrow gate. This is Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount to a group of people. It's in the context of a greater sermon, but it says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few ever find it. My question for you is this. 
We hear the word narrow and we, and we see that word narrow. And as a Christian sometimes growing up, I have felt ashamed when someone says uh, that Christians are narrow-minded. Or I have thought, boy, I hope that doesn't turn toward me and a spotlight comes to me where I have to give kind of an answer for this. Because I don't know what I would say and I began to feel tension and, and gosh, that does seem a little bit harsh actually come to think of it. And I just want to throw this out to you. The, the idea of, of narrow, is, is narrow thought of as something good or is narrow thought of as something bad? I mean, just culturally, not even in the church. Well, it kind of depends on what you're talking about, right? Uh, typically, our culture says that at your waistline, narrow, is, is it good or bad? Good. Yeah, great. They say, yeah, absolutely. Narrow is really good at the waistline, right? Um, how about minded? Narrow-minded or wide-minded? Narrow-minded is bad, right? Narrow at the waist, good. Narrow at the mind, bad. And that is drummed home time and time and time again from many different kinds of avenues. So it begs the question, is God narrow? Is God narrow? Because really it doesn't matter what culture says. It doesn't matter what you and I feel or think, right? Fashions come and go. We all know that. Most of us live through you know, some other decade than we're currently in. And we go, yeah, fashions fortunately go. You know, they'll be back. Uh, but but is, is God narrow? That's really the only question that matters. And we're going to look at that a little bit. Uh, enter the narrow gate. I want to throw out to you this morning that the Bible does, in fact, teach exclusivity. The Bible does, in fact, teach narrowness. Things that people would term narrow-minded. The song choices, by the way, that we sing are very, very intentional. And I probably caught the song lyrics more than most of you because I have the sermon rolling around in my head and knew where we're going. But there is one God. He is holy. There is one Lord over everything. We sang about this singularity of, of, of God. And we're even going to sing more about Jesus specifically. But the idea that there is not a plurality of gods, but one God. And that's something that the Bible teaches. One God in three persons. That the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came and provided a path of salvation. That's what the Bible teaches. But really, it's not a New Testament idea. Deuteronomy 5.7 says this, You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first of Ten Commandments. The very foundation of the nation of Israel was that there's no other gods. Why did he do that? Because he knew it would be a temptation. And so it's been for mankind all through the ages. Peter Preaching Jesus as the Savior of the world from jail to the rulers and people who were in authority at the time said this, Salvation is found in no one, he's talking about Jesus, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Do you hear the exclusive language of that? Not a lot of wiggle room for other saviors to kind of creep in right there. Romans 3.29 Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. So He's not a Jewish God. There's not a Jewish way to God and then a non-Jewish or Gentile way to God. There's not an American way to God, but then if you're Eastern European under a certain kind of ruler, there's a whole different path to God. No, the Bible makes it really clear. There's one Creator God. And He has provided one way home to Himself. And that's through Jesus Christ. 
So we have to, we have to face this. We're going to look at this some more later, but if, if you were to read on through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus doesn't really offer a lot of choices. Really, He offers two. Himself or not. Narrow or wide. He talks about two gates, two roads. He speaks about two different kinds of fruit. And He talks about two different destinies or destinations. One that leads to destruction and one that leads to life. And many of you know this, John 14, 6. I, Jesus talking, am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is offensive. That is an American... uh, In this culture, that is very offensive to say that. That will get you in hot water with your friends, with your relatives, with the nice little chat you're having with someone about, about spirituality and about heaven and hell. That is not a popular viewpoint. Bottom line is this. We read this in Romans uh, chapter 1 this morning. About not being ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It's, it's God's plan. Bottom line is that the gospel saves anything and everything else condemns. The way to God is on God's terms alone. The way to destruction or death is really on on, um, uh, anyone's terms they want because they all lead to the same place. And so no matter how you kind of dress it up or spiff it up or change it, it's, it's really two choices. We kind of look at the world as there's 32 major religions and then 64 sub-religions. I'm making up these numbers. But a lot of different paths, right? And within there, there can be multiple paths to enlightenment or to God or to heaven or to everlasting life or to peace on earth. And Jesus makes it absolutely crystal clear. And you have to wrestle with this. If you're going to take the Bible honestly and be a serious disciple of Jesus, is to say he really offered two choices himself, and everything else. For some reason, and again, I will just confess this in my own life, we don't like this. I've lived my entire life in America, and I value choice. I mean, it's, all, it's almost my birthright, really, as an American, right, to have choice. I go to the supermarket, I want choice. I have insurance that I need to deal with, I want choice. I want the freedom to choose. I want to know that I can do the research and I have the power and I make the decision of what goes down. There's something about choice that we think seems nicer. We think it seems nicer, basically, don't we? To say there's, there's many paths to God. Uh, there's people I've just not wanted to say this to that there, there's no choice because it's like that just doesn't seem very nice. Now, there used to be a a show, a a TV show a long time ago called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And um, I'm I'm thinking about starting a a new show called Moms Say the the Darndest Things because moms uh, really pack a lot of wisdom into their their everyday saying. And I heard something this week. It was unbelievable. Um, And I had to to, to bring this up. Saturday morning, uh, we typically have some kind of of a family breakfast going on. And this week it was French toast, much to my delight. And uh, I'm sitting there, and here's what, I, here's what I hear from the kitchen from a particular mom. Here it is. Being told something you don't like to hear isn't mean. It's just reality. <laughs> now, mind you, I'm sitting there, and I have, I have this morning's message in my mind, and this was said to my seven-year-old. 
And my seven-year-old was reacting to my three-year-old because my three-year-old was telling her something she didn't like. And then this mom steps in and drops this pearl of wisdom, and I thought, that's exactly it. If we don't like it, a natural reaction is, that's mean. You're being mean to me. And then mom, just saying it pretty simply, she didn't know she was being profound. She was in the middle of making French toast. But she said, that's just reality. And I thought, boy, from a young age, that's a good thing to teach our daughter. She needs to hear that. She's going to hear something later on. You're late. If you're late again, you're going to lose your job. Now, she could walk to the break room, right, and go, I've got a mean boss. No, no, no. That's just reality. You work at a job, you need to be on time, or else you will lose your job to someone who wants to be on time. Easy. That's just reality. Is the boss being mean? They could say it in a mean way, obviously. But our natural reaction is, I don't like that. That's mean. You're being mean. That's what a Christian gets when a Christian preaches the message of Jesus. That's mean. It seems mean to us to not have choices. We like our choices. John MacArthur, in his commentary, just said something that I couldn't say better, so I thought I'd just read him for you for a second. But he says this as he's commenting about this passage. The contrast Jesus makes is not between religion and irreligion, or between higher religions and lower ones. Nor is it a contrast between nice and upright people and vile and degraded ones. It is a contrast between divine righteousness and human righteousness all of which is unrighteousness, human righteousness, that is. It is a contrast between divine revelation and human religion, between divine truth and human falsehood, between trusting in God and trusting in self. It is a contrast between God's grace and man's work. That just lays it out really simply. We had these jugglers from a couple of weeks ago. Religion looks to say... Who can keep the ball up in the air the longest? And if you know you're dropping them, at least make it look good. Get a hologram so it looks like you're juggling, you know, and you're eating a sandwich. I don't know. But that's a little bit of what religion's about, is propping it up and trying to do it yourself. Christianity, what Jesus preached as the good news, the fantastic news, is I know you dropped the balls. You were never meant to keep all three of those up indefinitely anyways. So let me intervene and rescue you, juggle for you, as it were. Either we're good enough to save ourselves or we're not and in need of intervention. God has left nothing to man except for the choice. He's provided the means to salvation. He's provided the directions to salvation. Uh, It says that the work of our faith even is God's from start to finish. Think about those of you who know Christ, those of you who are drawn here this morning spiritually to be fed because you're hungry. Think about it. Did you wake up one day and just go, I am going to go and pursue God. I am going to get my life right. Or was there something in you that said, man, I was drawn. God awakened in my spirit truth and reality and who He was and what this was all about and He opened my eyes. He's the hero of my story. Now, kind of a key component in this whole discussion is this. Sometimes we, we, we tend to think of it as this way. Uh, we, we sort of think that uh, people who are, who are not choosing Christianity are, are saying, I want to go to hell. 
And this broad road that Jesus talks about that leads to destruction, it's not marked hell. There's not a giant down arrow and, you know, a big, ah, you know, devil saying, come join me. Um, Farside has some of the best heaven and hell cartoon clips of all time. I used to just tear off a little day calendar. And Gary Larson had this, this funny way about him with, with heaven and hell. And I used to get a kick out of those. But it's kind of a commentary on culturally what we think about heaven and hell sometimes. No, rather, both roads are marked to heaven. Both roads mark this way to life. And at that intersection of choice, you look at it and you can't quite see it around the bend. The broad way that leads to destruction is marked heaven this way. Salvation this way. Godliness this way. Spirituality this way. That's what the broad road is marked. And that's why it's confusing. That's why it's challenging. I had a great conversation, uh, probably several weeks ago now, but I was doing some study at my, my office away from my offices, Starbucks or Pete's. I love just being um, in a coffee shop. And, and I was sitting there, I was kind of wrapping up. I, I needed to go and get home for dinner. And, uh, and this guy you know, was there, and we started, we started a little conversation. And, uh, and as we began to talk, we were, we were dialoguing about some different things, and, um, and he began to talk to me about some things, and, and, the spirit, and the conversation really very soon led to truth and ultimate truth and our, our destiny really as, as people. And, and um, I had my Bible sitting there, I mean, just open. It's amazing how many people don't know that this is a Bible, uh, but it's sitting there, you know, we were talking. And um, so I asked him, I said, I said uh, what are your thoughts on Jesus Christ? Because it's really good to always bring it back to the unequivocal authority of the Scriptures and to who Jesus was. We could talk for days about all kinds of other issues. But I asked him that. And he said, well, and I think he had been talked to by Christians before because of this. He said, I think he was one of two holy men, great holy men. And he began to go on and articulate some different things. He was very well educated. He was a passionate seeker of the truth. I firmly believe that. We, we ended up talking for half an hour about Jesus and spirituality and Muhammad and pacifism and righteousness and works and anger and all kinds of things. And he was very well read. He said one of his top ten speeches was the Sermon on the Mount. And he knew it decently well. And as we began to talk and dialogue, what I left him with was this. What I realized in talking to him was there was a fundamental problem, and that was that he was on the broad road that led to destruction. He wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ says, I am right to the exclusion of all else, everything else leads to destruction, then you can't politely put him in the same camp with another person who says, I have the way to God. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. My parting comment to this guy was this. I said, I said friend, I think you're a genuine seeker of the truth. I mean, you've, just, you've shown that to me. I said, would you keep your eyes and mind and heart opened to who Jesus really is and who he claimed to be? Not what everyone else says he is, who he claimed to be. And that's found in the Bible. And uh, I can't remember if he said he would or not, but it ended amiably. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a good conversation to have. 
But I drove home and we prayed for him at dinner. My, my heart was heavy for this guy, thinking, this is a guy who is on the broad road that leads to destruction, and it's marked heaven. I mean, he is passionately going headlong after that because it's marked as heaven. Look down in verse 21 of chapter 7. Verse 21 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that's judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. He says, many are going to come up to him. Jesus! What's up? And he's going to just go, no. You're not in. You're not in the family. You didn't do the will of God. What's the will of God? To believe and throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus and say, I can't do it. You can. I trust in your gift of salvation. Period. And then from then on, live a life in response to that great reality. Jesus warned in Mark 13, 22. We're not going to turn there, but just write it down. He warned of other false Christs. He warned that there would be false saviors. And He says He did it ahead of time. He says, I want you to know this in advance so that, so that you'll know that I knew about it. Mark 13, 22. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and even perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you ahead of time. It's this dire warning that he has. So the question arises, why proclaim and preach only Jesus? Quite simply because that's what God prescribes us to do. If you were an Israelite in the Old Testament, the same question could be said, why on earth do you do temple worship? Why do you do all that the same exact way? Why do you wash your hands with that? Why were the measurements of the burning fire you know, supposed to be this square that were five cubits? And, you know, why, why do all that? Well, well, because God told us to. That's why. It's a, it's a really, really simple answer. We didn't dream up the measurements of this. We didn't dream up these Ten Commandments. We do these because God told us to. How about as a Christian? Why hold your tongue? when it feels really good to lash out? Because God told you to. You know that your tongue's a fire. And it can do a lot of damage. And so you hold your tongue. Why do you wait? Why do you sacrifice the now for some future thing? Because God told you to. That's why. Why, why do you be gracious in, in, in the face of tremendous pressure? Why are you humble when you could be proud? Why do you put others first instead of demanding your own way when you have every right to? Quite simple. God told me to. That's why. Why preach only Jesus? Believers today, God told us to. That's why. That's quite simply it in a nutshell. If God had allowed 52 ways to Himself and told me to, I'd preach 52 different ways to Jesus. 52 different ways to heaven. And we'd have sermons. Maybe that's 52 weeks a year. Look at that. I just pulled that number out of the air. But we could just do, we could just do one a week and just keep on going if that's what God told us to do. The, deed of G, the, the, the deity or godness of Jesus, the absolute supremacy of Jesus, and the exclusiveness that Jesus alone saves is undeniable and unavoidable in the Scriptures. And we can't get around it, dig under it, or go over it. We have to face that head on. And if we read the Bible, we see that. And again, I can hear you in this room or your coworkers saying, Wait a minute. 
No room for opposing opinions on that one. No diversity. No compassionate tolerance to, to that kind of ideology. When it comes to the gospel, absolutely not. And when a Christian says, absolutely not, there's no tolerance, it's not because a Christian is trying to be selfish, prideful, or egotistical. Again, it comes back to quite simply, because that's the way God set it up. That's how it goes down. We were told to preach Christ and Him crucified. So that message doesn't come out once a, once a year at Easter. And the rest of the time we talk something else. That comes out every week, doesn't it? We preach Christ and Him crucified. And not just risen from the dead, but the life He lives right now to give you life in and through us. That's what we preach. Jesus said at the end of His life to His disciples, teach people to obey everything I commanded you. So that's something else that we're about. So we do it because Jesus said to. Now I just want you to think about the Old, the Old Testament story of, of Noah's Ark. Because this... This story to me is a, is a living, it's, a, it's an illustration. The Old Testament illustrates theological truths from the New Testament. Think about the story of the Old Testament uh, of, of Noah's Ark. I picked that one because I think most people, uh, long-time churchgoer or not, uh, if you've seen Evan Almighty, you, you get the gist of it, I guess. But, um, but most of you know the story, right? Think about that overlaid with this message that we're talking about today. In or out, Right? Whose choice was it for, for the, the neighbors of, of Noah? It was their own choice. God provided a way of safety. Was it narrow? You can read the measurements yourself. It was however wide God made the opening to be. You could put, a, you could put an actual measurement on that one. But pretty narrow, right? No other boats made it. No other tree was tall enough. There was one way to salvation. And think about this. Few are those who find it, Jesus says of God's way of salvation. Few were those who responded to the free invitation. He built that ark for a long, long time. They had every opportunity to respond. Why build an ark? Why on earth are you using cypress wood? Why on earth are you making it so big? Why is now the right time? Listen to Genesis 6.22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Why? God told me, you're crazy. I know it seems that way. It's a big boat. <laughs> but God told me, you're going to be, you're going to be laughed at. You're going, to be, uh, you're going to have angry faces at you. You might even receive threats of being a bigot, of being the lowest form of intolerant scum. God told me to. Now, you can do it in a gracious way or an obnoxious way. Uh, self-righteous way. I, I hope and pray you would do the way Jesus did, but that you'd be unflinching and unashamed of the gospel, recognizing that the, 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 the power is not in your delivery or in you personally or in the, the miracle of the story. It's just in the gospel. That's the power of God to save. If you think about God's uh, example of saving throughout history, sprinkle blood over your doorposts. Remember that one? That's the people of Israel escaping the death angel so that their firstborn wouldn't die. Now you could look at that and go, well, that seems really narrow. I'm going to sprinkle it on my garden instead. I want choices. Or you could just do exactly what he said and live. Moses, put your staff in the sea. This is the way to salvation. Narrow. One way. Didn't make a lot of sense at the time. 
Never been seen before or since. But that's the way God provided. God's methods and timing don't often make sense, but they must and they can be trusted. All right. Second part of this phrasing is even more uh, troubling to me in some ways than, than the first. That only a few find the road. Flip over to Luke 13 and look with me down in, in 22. There's a parallel kind of a passage where Jesus is asked a specific question, maybe in response to the Sermon on the Mount. So I heard you, you said that only a few are going to find it. What's that all about? We don't know, but he's, he says this. He's, uh, Jesus, uh, verse 22 of, of chapter 13. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. Remember Noah's Ark? Doesn't that sound familiar? But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and, and you taught in our streets. Noah, we know who you are. You've been around us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south, and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and those who are first who will be last. Is God exclusive and narrow? Absolutely. Is God wide and inclusive? Absolutely. There will be those from the north and from the south and from the east and the west, and those you least expect from every socioeconomic background from every culture, from every age group. They'll be there in the kingdom of God. The offer is open to one and to all, but Jesus demands a response. That's what else you can't get away from. Is that Jesus demands a response. This guy admired the Sermon on the Mount. This guy I was talking to at Starbucks the other day. It was one of his top ten speeches. I don't even have a list of top ten speeches. I was pretty impressed with that. But you know what? Jesus doesn't say, admire the narrow gate. Study about the narrow gate. Be able to articulate all the various facets of narrow gates. Make narrow gates. He doesn't do any of that. Don't stand at a distance, but respond. Drop everything and enter by the narrow gate. In Luke 13, he says, strive to enter. The word strive, used in other translations from verse 24, is a Greek word that has the word agonize right in it. He says, agonize to be on that narrow way, to enter through the narrow gate. The battle that we're invited into as we follow Christ is a spiritual battle. It's not waged on our enemies. We learned last week we're to love our enemies. The battle that we're to wage is on our own sin. That's the biggest hindrance for us to getting knocked off of the narrow way. I think about agony or striving. I think about Rocky preparing for a fight. It's the raw eggs. It's the waking up super early in the morning. The jogging in a hideous sweatsuit. I mean, the whole nine yards. It's, it's, it's a struggle. It's for the fight. We have these men's community groups, three of them, that have just started up, that are dealing specifically with spiritual disciplines. 
That's what it is to, to, to agonize or to strive to enter the narrow gate. It's to say, God, I'm going to be vigilant over my own soul. In the context of this, I want you to listen to Jesus in the garden, to his disciples. Mark 14, 38. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And that's a part of what this striving is about. Not just in garden time with Jesus, but in all of life. is to stay on guard. Jesus warned, catch this, that the days before His second coming, there is a day coming when as Noah was told, okay, now is the day to close up the ark. No more get in or out. You better have your family in there or they're toast. A day is coming, Jesus says, when I'm coming back. And He warns that in the days before His second coming, there'll be totally normal days. In fact, he says there will be just like the days before the flood in Noah's day. Listen to, listen to Matthew twenty four thirty eight. Just listen. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the second coming of the Son of Man. It'll be normal. Giving people to marry, eating and drinking, that's just normal, everyday stuff. He goes on in verse 42 to say this, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. I want to just close with this thought. Do you know that if you are, I don't know if you've ever been in a life or death situation, but if you are absolutely convinced that you're perishing, the thought never enters your mind, gosh, that's a narrow-minded way to save me. If you're drowning and a lifeguard comes up and chucks you one of these, you don't say, hey, that's so cliche. Could you get something a little more modern? I'm wearing a swimsuit that doesn't go well with red and white. Any other colors? Do you see how those are completely irrelevant questions? But, but the enemy deceives the masses into saying you're safe. There's absolutely no danger. And so it becomes really narrow-minded and, and, and you can have all kinds of conversations that don't make any sense if you're absolutely and utterly convinced that you're perishing. When all of a sudden you just see the way of salvation and your response is thanksgiving and grabbing hold on as tight as you can and not letting go. I want to invite the band up and I want to invite the rest of you to just close your eyes for a moment to not be distracted by anything. I want to ask us as a church, are we church, those of you who would claim the name of Christ, who've been bought with the blood of Jesus, who've trusted in the finished work of Him on the cross, are you and I sober to the war that we are in? Do we understand that we're in a battle? Are we striving to keep on the narrow way? Second question, are we keeping watch over our own souls? Temptation is there at every turn. Sins like a lion prowling about seeking who it can devour. Apathy creeps in. Laziness creeps in. Pride creeps in. Boredom creeps in. Are we nurturing our souls? 
This question for you personally. Have you personally responded and acted on the invitation of Jesus to enter the kingdom by the narrow gate? Is that something you personally have responded to? The reason Jesus demands this is because He knows what's at stake. This is an ultimate issue. Heaven and hell are at stake. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it.